0: Okay, hi everybody. We are back at Dorothy's Place. I say we, Elias Krim. Uh, we're missing our, our compadre, Pete Davis, who unfortunately is not available today. But I'm excited because we have a friend and colleague of Pete's, Brianna Davis, the senior editor at Current Affairs, on the phone to us with a less than perfect non Zoom connection. But that's all right, we're gonna make this work. Hi, Brianna. Great to have you here. Hey, thanks having me. You are. I, I came across your stuff because I knew Pete. I started subscribing to this new magazine called Current Affairs, which has kind of um, an amusing mission, which is to produce the world's first readable political publication and <laughs> to make life joyful again. I think both of those are good ideas. So, can can a magazine coming out six times a year do that tell us about current affairs
1: well current affairs is uh primarily the the brainchild of my friend uh nathan robinson um who made it for a while basically out of his living room while he was a grad student um and now it's turned into kind of a uh a full-time thing um and actually has like something of a readership which is fun um so i um i met nathan while he was A grad student, I was a law student, um, and uh, started helping with writing and editing things. Um, So, the goal of Current Affairs was to um, be uh, a publication that wrote about uh, left ideas um, in a way that was enjoyable and amusing to read, but also with an eye towards persuading people who didn't agree with them already. Um, Nathan's kind of main idea, which I strongly agreed with, was that a lot of the political essays that are put out now are written uh primarily for an audience of people who already share the ideas being espoused. And it's not that there's no place for that, but there's kind of a dearth of uh writing that is seeking to um persuade people who maybe or, or sort of more generally like make people think about ideas um who maybe haven't thought about them before or don't already agree with them. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. so uh yeah, so, but Current Affairs is also um, trying to um, bring joy. Uh, as you said, so we have uh, we have our online edition, which is mostly just the essays, but our print edition um, ha- is full of these beautiful illustrations and games and amusements and things. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's um, I think, a, ni- a nice thing to have on the copy table. Um, I always <laughs> enjoy actually getting my copy as well cause yeah. There are always
0: things yeah. in there that like, I haven't edited that are a surprise to me. Great, great. Yes, it's a very unusual uh, endeavor. Magazines, I, I used to be in the magazine business. They're very special <laughs> recipes, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, each one tastes very different. Um, it's really kind of a conversation between the editors. Um, and it's a very interesting uh, bunch of editors and contributors you've got there. So it's great fun, but also, I mean, totally serious publication you guys you know are up to something serious you make it entertaining you make it interesting but this is um uh not just uh for fun so that's great that's great how does how does you're a lawyer how does law school by the way did you pass the bar exam yet i did yeah I passed <laughs> okay. it, i'm sorry uh, i didn't ask you that no. live live yeah. on the podcast what if, what if you said no no well that's good okay I guess I would just be doing the same stuff that someone needs to be superizing me. Yeah, yeah, right. I see. I see. You're all done. So what what impelled um, a presumably nice middle-class person like yourself to go to law school, of all things? Oh, Lord. Well, um, I don't know. (laughs) I don't have any lawyers in my family, um, so it wasn't. Um, and it wasn't anything that when I was a kid I dreamed of doing, or even
1: very uh-huh. much in college wasn't really on my radar. Um, I had thought about going into to grad school for history, hmm. um, for um, medieval history, um, wow. but uh, I, I, t- I decided to take a year, two years actually, to kind of think through uh, what I wanted to do, um, and I felt like um, it wasn't, for me personally, wasn't really fair to go back to a institution and sort of just spent time um, on a research project when there were lots of bad things happening in the world. And I thought maybe being a lawyer would be something useful I could do. Um, And it has has been, it has proved, I think, to be a somewhat useful profession. I'm sure. (laughs) Um, sure. I don't really enjoy the law very much, but I think that you, in the current system that we have, you can use the the law in ways that's helpful to people
0: at times. Absolutely. Um, Yep. Yeah. Well, and you it apparently picked a part of the law um asylum law which has now landed you in a rather remote place called Dilly Texas so could you could you describe yeah. Dilly Texas for us
1: <laughs> so yeah so i um i i decided to become an immigration lawyer that had been something that was on my mind before law school, because I had uh, interned at a couple organizations that provided immigration services, and I I liked the work, I liked the people, and the more I learned about the immigration system, the more I realized that it was uh, way crueler and more dysfunctional than I had ever known just from being a person who read about the news and wasn't directly affected by it, Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. I wanted to go work on it, and then, you know, the the rhetoric around immigration got um, a lot more heated while I was in law school, so that kind of, Maybe feel increasingly like the correct choice. Um, but Dilley, Texas is uh, the home to the uh, largest family detention center um, in the U.S. There are only, um, well, at the moment, I think there are only two. There are sometimes three. There's one center that gets, like, repurposed back and forth at different times. So this is the big one. Um, so family detention centers are where they uh, detain mothers who cross the border with children under the age of 18 because at least until very recently, there were special protections that prevented um, the government from detaining children um, beyond 20 days. Um, And so they had to have special detention facilities for children who cross with their parents because they didn't, uh, it's it's at this point not sort of politically acceptable to separate children from uh, uh, their parents. And there's also some legal protections that theoretically get in the way of that as well. And so they have these special facilities where uh, asylum-seeking women and children uh, wait while their cases, their kind of initial cases, are being processed. Uh, Most of the women who come here are being put into a special legal process where they have to have an interview with the asylum office and sort of make a threshold claim for asylum. And if they can't pass the interview, they get deported immediately. so the center is sort of there for them to um, be housed while that process is ongoing. Mm-hmm. And then um, the organization that I work for is there to try and prepare everybody for their interviews to make sure that everyone's happy with their interviews. Um, and so it's an interesting town. It was a, um, I, I, it's, it's actually kind of a sad town. It's, it's got a lot of, you know, it, it's kind of, it's got like a town square, like it's, it's sort of laid out like it used to be sort of like a, a thriving uh, community, but uh, every, all the shops are boarded up. Um, mm. There's not a lot of people out in the street. Um, most of the uh, industry now comes from oil, so there's a lot of fracking the water like, really bad. And then also, like there is um, a state prison here on the same street as the detention center. Um, and every day when I drive past the, the, the state facility on my way to the child detention center, um, there are like chain gangs out working in the watermelon wow. fields out front. So wow. like, um, like watched by like armed men on horseback. It's it's uh, so wow.
0: interesting place. <laughs> wow. So let's see. You're I, I think you're about halfway between San Antonio to the north and Laredo to the south. Is that right? I think you said yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Your your job sounds like you are mostly listening to stories.
1: I do a fair amount of that. Um, I'm also, um, and a lot of times, I'm sort of also listening to stories from kind of a second remove because the way our project works because we have a small staff we can't possibly provide legal services to every single person on our own. We have a volunteer system where um, sort of random people come in every week and we train them on the law really quickly and then we send them in. So Sometimes I'm talking to people directly. Other times I'm training and sort of supervising these volunteers and having them come consult with me about their cases um, so it's sort of like two layers sometimes I'm hearing it directly from people sometimes I'm hearing this kind of like unusual filtered version through another person that I'm then mm. trying to help them figure out how to proceed what the case they're working on.
0: Yeah you know in your in your um, articles I, I love the title you came up with for the series Um, It's This Week in Terrible Immigration News, Um, just to set everybody's expectations, right? Um, And I recommend the articles, by the way. I've read most of them, and I also note that you write about all kinds of things, so it's really, you know, we've really got lots of different interests, medieval history and all kinds of stuff. Um, But you, you were talking, one, about the Trump strategy, which is, one, to deter some people by threatening to take away their children, deter some more by putting them in long-term detention, which as you also point out in your articles is really the equivalent of going to prison basically. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, um, deter more yet by simply taking away the legal basis for most asylum cases. Um, That's still the way you see this going?
1: Yes, and with even more bad things added in, unfortunately. Um, mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. one one thing that has come up um, in more recent months that I did not completely foresee that's been a huge problem is this Remain in Mexico program, where mm. there is a, a subset of I think at this point about sixty thousand asylum seekers mm. who, instead of um, being detained in the U.S. or released into the U.S. to await their court dates. They're being sent back to Mexico to await their court dates. There's no infrastructure in place to take care of them. Mm. They have no access to legal services. They stay in Mexico. They get bused into the U.S. for their hearings and then bused back to Mexico after their hearings. Uh, it's, like, incredibly unsafe, um, the places where they're staying. Um, and so that – I and the, the legal challenges to that in court have failed so far. So um, I'm very, very worried about that um, because – Um, I think that that could pretty much destroy our entire asylum system. Um, Mm So, but yeah, no, the the sort of try everything to make people's lives miserable is still the Trump
0: administration.
1: Yeah. For sure. Um, And every, it is true. Like I can't, I can't write this update perhaps enough to keep up with all the things that are happening. Like, Mm -hmm. um, like I got to write another one now because I'm still behind on all the past, the past
0: uh, wasn't but, wasn't know, but, uh, wasn't the Flores rule in the news yesterday? Yeah,
1: so that's that's the latest thing. Which
0: um, I
1: you know it's supposed to come into effect sixty days from now. So hmm. um, you know I probably won't see the immediate effects of that. But that would be something that would completely dismantle uh, the work that I'm doing because um, the system that we have here to provide legal services relies on the fact that. Um, when families pass this threshold interview and prove that they have a, a possible claim for asylum that they get released from detention that they can go mm-hmm. to join their families in the u.s that they can get a lawyer that they can like be in court not detained um if they start detaining all these families long term there's not going to be lawyers who are able to provide services for the entirety of their cases asylum cases they're incredibly complex they require a lot of work um and like working with detained asylum seekers is very, very hard, both because, like, the conditions of detention, it hard for them to, like, participate in their cases, but also because it's hard to get the information you need. It's hard to access your client. It's hard to, like, track down their family members when they are locked up. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so that would be... That, apart from the fact that it's also going to be incredibly traumatizing for children to be in long-term detention, um, the, their legal cases are going to be in really bad shape,
0: too. Mm-hmm. Brianna, um, who else do you see, uh, if much of anyone, on the ground there, either on this side of the border or the other? What, what are there? Do you see other organizations that seem to be involved in working with these families, particularly?
1: Yeah, so there are various organizations. Um, so, like my organization um, is a. And I should clarify, I always have to make this disclaimer that everything I say is on my own personal opinion and not on okay. behalf of my organization sure. or sure. any, any okay. other group. But uh, so my organization is a partnership between um, the American Immigration Council and uh, the Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid, which is the biggest legal aid organization in Texas. Hmm. Um, and uh, there's another organization, right, you says, that does a lot of immigration work around here. Um, and then, um, there's a project down at the detentions in Laredo that's actually run by Jones Day, the law firm. Um, and then, um, El Paso has a bunch of different organizations. Um, El Otro Lago is one of the, the main ones that does, um, immigration work. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm less familiar with organizations that are working on, the Mexican side, I don't think that there's a very developed infrastructure on the Mexican side for, like, legal services, for example. There's definitely lots of, like, shelters mm-hmm. um, where, you know, some of them are by religious organizations or, like, you know, other organizations trying to, like, um, provide some kind of shelter for migrants. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's uh, one of the problems of this Remain in Mexico thing is that we haven't figured out a lot of, like, way to do, like, cross-border legal services because, oh. like... It hasn't been a, it hasn't been as big a need up to this point, and it's it's like it's hard to coordinate. There's not there's not a lot. Uh, I mean, there are there are certainly lots of dedicated people here, but there's just not enough people to, to meet the incredible needs that are here.
0: Mm-hmm. You, you did a piece that included um, a kind of a quick visit across the border to Nuevo Laredo, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, more embedded journalism, um, and slightly scary. Um, Peace, um, but you know, maybe you should tell listeners a bit about what that experience was like. Oh,
1: so that was a couple summers ago when I went to uh, I went to Nuevo Laredo, which is the sister city to Laredo, Texas, on the other side of the border. Um, and I went to visit a um, a shelter for migrants who have recently been deported from the U.S. or who are um, have just traveled north and are sort of preparing to cross but aren't quite ready. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I you know, I, I don't want to, like, sensationalize because these people go yeah. to New Laredo all the time, and, like, nothing, nothing yeah. happens to them, so it's not like I was, like, really in feature. but I did kind of come on an interesting day, I think, because there was, uh, there was a little bit of a, uh, kind of a hullabaloo in the, the center that I was visiting because there was someone there who had just fled the, 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 the cartel, um, uh, and, yeah. uh, they were a little bit worried that the cartel was going to come looking for them there. Um, It turned out to be like kind of a non-event, but then I was mostly just struck by all the things that like I was seeing that seemed shocking to me that I think are completely normalized in cities like um, Nuevo Laredo and other Mm -hmm. parts of of Mexico, where um, you have like police officers and like masks with machine guns sort of like going around on trucks, and then you have like um, kind of uh, you know teams of, of people in like military uniforms sort of scrambling into uh cars you have lots of the uh um, you know the newspapers the sort of like tabloid newspapers that they give out always have these like pictures of like you know mutilated bodies on the front because that's sort of like the sensational news um and all this stuff is just like it's it's you know it's, it's not unusual for the place but it seems for having just crossed the border like you know, fifteen minutes earlier from a city that's like has a totally different feel. It's 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 just strange to suddenly be in the middle of that. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: yeah. But actually, in things and um, Nuevo Laredo is an example of um, you know I went there a couple of years ago and um, the situation for immigrants there has changed a lot because mm. um, partly because of this Remain in Mexico program and also because. Nuevo Laredo and Laredo is like a, one of the ports of entry where like if you wanted to present yourself to the government and say, I would like to apply for asylum, go do that. Huh. And they're blocking off all the ports of entry. So Nuevo Laredo now has a lot more people just kind of waiting around like with nowhere to go because they can't get Peru huh. um, or they've been sent back. Um, so, um, yeah, so it's different now than it was then. You
0: know? Yeah. You know, I, I sense that Mexican people, and as far as I know them a bit, they, they have such a different mindset on the whole about this. I mean, they send their society in some ways you could argue is maybe healthier, more communal minded and so on. But you might also figure by now, particularly at these uh, border areas, they're getting uh, stretched. And in addition to the the problem of the cartels, um, they're, their natural capacity for charity may be reaching kind of an end point, you know? Or what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I I certainly can't. um, I can't speak to that very closely. Um, But I do think it is, and this is sort of a problem with um, kind of refugee situations the world over, but, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. we're certainly, you know, making it worse on our own doorstep where, like, it's always the, like, places that are least equipped to handle large influxes of people that get saddled with large influxes of people. And by that, I simply mean, like, I believe in free movement. I think people should go wherever they want to go. But like, there is a difference between like a place that's already uh, struggling a lot with its own, like, to provide social services to its own people to sort of like preserve uh, infrastructure uh, and political stability to absorb more people versus a place like the U.S. that can, like, absorb a lot of people without yep. much political strain that isn't purely manufactured. Um, and so, like, it's, you know, it's, it's very dangerous for these migrants to be there, and it is true, like, I, I, I don't know that, like, I mean, Mexico has enough trouble keeping its own citizens safe without also yep. protecting more people, and that's, and I use that term in a very vague way because there, there's also the massive problem of, like, corruption and government and like the relationship between the government and the cartels and then the fact that the police are also and military also incredibly predatory <laughs> so like they're sort of it's, uh, yeah um, it's, it's
0: not good <laughs> yeah yeah you know i've been trying to read up a little bit on the history here uh, partly just because of my own interest i'm originally from texas i'm actually from uh, the east texas area not down near the border i'm more near Louis- okay. louisiana um, also, my oldest daughter just moved to San Diego. So she's about oh, a half yeah. hour from Tijuana. And she's, I yeah. think, going to be looking at getting involved in some public health stuff. And her Spanish is going to have to get better. And she's going to discover uh, kind of the you know the other side of San Diego. Um, but I started reading, um, I don't know if you know a book called... Um, the End of the Myth by Greg Grandin is a book about the frontier myth in American history and how the border relates to what's happening on the border now is the end of the frontier. It's the tombstone of the frontier imperial project in a way. It's an amazing book. But he points out that, you know, before World War I, de facto, we almost had open borders. I mean, unless you were obviously ailing or there was some other obvious complication, it it really was pretty porous. And then in 1928, the Immigration Act was passed. And so we were denying lots of Europeans and Asians now, so we needed Mexicans. And they began to come in greater numbers and then at the same time with this Immigration Act, we created the U.S. Border Patrol. And his his brief kind of capsule history of the Border Patrol, you know, is hair raising. It's just, it's, it's like when you find out um, kind of the mentality of this organization, I realize it's half Latino, which is pretty ironic at this point, but the history of the thing um, goes back to, um, do you, do you know the name um, Ramon Cassiano? I don't know. He, he, he comes up in a song. He's uh, a little pop culture thing. He comes up in a song uh, by the Drive-By Truckers, a group mm-hmm. I had heard of but never listened to until I read, read uh, Greg Grandin's book. But their song is about how this, this Ramon, he's a kid, and he's murdered by a guy who becomes eventually the head of the U.S. Border, border Patrol. And this guy whose name is, um, Harlan (laughs) Carter, he was killed in 1931. This guy in the fifties creates for the border patrol operation wetback, which was as lovely as it sounds. And in 1977, he was an NRA member who was part of the group kind of extremist group who pushed the NRA to the hard right. I thought, wow, what an amazing story. So, Right. Yeah. I mean, the way all these threads come together. But yeah, the, the connections are just yeah. You know, I mean, astonishing. I, and you're and you're uh, uh, someone interested in history. Um, how how has your being in Dilly and working on these these problems uh, kind of deepened your sense of the fact that you've moved into kind of like the eye of this cur- cultural hurricane? You know. I mean, it has really coming here i realized how little i know about the history of the border um or
1: the history of mexican u.s relation because mm-hmm. um i do i do sometimes feel like there is this kind of like um psychology to the border that i don't have access to or wasn't familiar with before i came yeah. um and i think it is very significant that like this is, this has been a like disputed border in the not that distant past, and that the fact that it's so militarized now is surely like yeah. connected to that at least yeah. to some degree. And like, I don't think that that's honestly like talked about very much. And you kind of see that a little bit with like the sh- not that you know. I don't I don't mean to imply that like all, all shooters have like fully formed up out- mentalities, but the El Paso shooter talked about how like I here I did this to like stop the invasion. Yeah. Of Hispanics into yep. Texas, which is, you know, you know, darkly amusing in that El Paso is like 90% percent let let you
0: know, it like has been forever <laughs> right. um, and that
1: used to be part of Mexico. Right. Um, right. But yeah, there, it's, it's, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't like the feeling of being in the, the eye of history, I guess, because mm-hmm. um, I, I don't like the direction this is moving and I don't know how to stop it um it it seems very bad to me um and I think people are if things proceed as they're going I think either people are going to look back at this time with a lot of shame or there's not going to be anybody with any consciousness of shame to look back at all so so you know the latter possibility obviously being the worst one
0: but um but it's yeah I I don't know how to feel about it to be honest you're going to have to decide if uh, you think you're, you're ready to become one of those hero journalists, you know, that goes, in, <laughs> goes into the war zone. You, you sound a little squeamish about this on, in your articles, which I can, fully, I can fully understand. This wasn't quite what you signed up for. Um, yeah, you know, but the border, what this reminds me of, um, and, and the only kind of related experience I've had, was a long time ago when I took a trip to the old Soviet Union. And we were told going in that this was a big, sort of goofy bureaucracy. It didn't work well. Their surveillance was actually kind of terrible, really. This is all, you know, pre-wireless, pre-internet. So it was all very analog. But there were two places where you couldn't mess around. One of them was Lenin's tomb. So if you're a tourist, you know, it's like the White House or something don't goof off don't don't try to be funny uh, and the second place was the border, mm-hmm. so the border is dead serious if you make a mistake, bad things happen, you know, and it seems to be like a yeah. kind of a universal rule now i'm not it didn't used to be, but now you know it's all deadly serious mm-hmm.
1: yeah, well, and I think there's a sense of the border um, that there's more impunity at borders. Hmm. Um, I think I think both because there's sort of this sense that tensions are high and people are going to do things and that they're like going to feel threatened and that it's going to be understandable. Like, um, and then also the weirdness of like when you are between two jurisdictions, um, sort of feeling like almost no laws apply to you. Um, huh. Like there was that famous case not that long ago of the border patrol officer who shot two children on the opposite on the Mexican side of the border who had been throwing rocks in his direction. Oh wow! Um, and the family tried. The family tried. To, the, the family, in Mexico, tried to sue him, and the court ended up deciding that they like didn't have jurisdiction to bring a suit because like he had been like the kids had been like shot in Mexico, but he been standing on U.S. soil. So it, it's it's uh, yeah, border borders are do bad things. people's brains, I think
0: mm, um, mm. for sure. Um, well, you know um, your your ability to bring something kind of vivid and immediate to this question being located there, um, is, is great. So I hope you'll, you'll push on for a while longer. Is there an end date for your, your time in Dilley or how do you see that project working out?
1: So there's no end, there's no end date for my time. Um, I think probably in the near future, we have some new um, staff coming on at Dilley. Um, so I may be moving to work on, um like other other immigration issues at the border um once they're sort of trained up and ready to go at dilly um so um, so i don't know how long i'll be physically like ha- like working all the time at this particular detention center um but there's no end date for my time in texas i my, my life is just a blank in front of me i have no idea well it's going to depend on like what the government's up to like how
0: the election goes other other factors, yeah, um,
1: yeah but um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, but it feels it feels like it doesn't feel right to leave. Like, I mean, it's um there's there's so much there's so much happening. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, and it's very hard to get people to understand what's happening for good reason because, like, a lot of this the stuff the government is doing. I mean with the notable exception of, like, family separation, a lot of it doesn't sound that dramatic to people, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're looking at, like, each new kind of policy in isolation. You're like, oh, if you're not familiar with the immigration system, you're like, oh, okay, I didn't really know that that was happening. Okay. Um, but taken together, like, it's very clear that this is an attempt to just choke off all asylum seeking at the border. Yep. Or at <clears throat> least, like, create the appearance of doing so in order to appease some section of the American public that apparently cares about this, although I'm not sure that
0: that's a very significant part of the public. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Hmm. Do you think that uh, if you left Texas and moved back elsewhere, somewhere, um, do you think you'd continue doing this kind of work? Or do you, have you gotten kind of a a feel for it? Or is that kind of unknowable at this point?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, I'm trained as a, in immigration lawyers and asylum, doing asylum cases, there are certainly um, people who need representation in all parts of the country because there are immigration courts all across the country. So wherever I move, I could do immigration cases. Um, There is kind of a question of, at a certain point, you know, if if this trajectory continues, if Trump's reelected, or if the next president uh, is not motivated to fix a lot of these bad things we're doing, exacerbate them. um, You know, there's a there may be a point at which I start to wonder, like, is it worth continuing to be a lawyer? Is there some other way that I could try to work on this problem that I would feel was more effective? Uh, but that's hard for me to say in advance. Um, because right now there are things that you can do within like, you know, with the law. Uh, but there is like a lot of need for other kinds of for, for reporting, for other kinds of social services, for protest organizing. Um, that's not; those are not all skill sets that I have. Um, but you know, it's hard to
0: say what the what the future will bring. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> you know, our podcast is called uh, Dorothy's Place, uh, named in honor of Dorothy Day. Uh, uh, Pete is a, I believe, a convert to Catholicism, and I am also so. Yeah, we're both kind of. I think he was born Catholic. Oh, he was. Oh, I didn't um, know that. I thought he was a convert. Yeah. Okay. Because I know his family's not religious, he told me, but he somehow is. But anyway, so so one of the things we constantly scratch our heads over is kind of the condition of the church and all that. And uh, I'm aware of a, a group called the Border Bishops. And in the um, in the dismal subject of the U.S. episcopacy, it seems like the Border Bishops, you know, are the people that kind of really have a sense of the reality of the world in some ways. I wondered if you have any connections with or, or see much effort on the part, on the part of the church um, around where you are.
1: You know, I mean, you know, I'm in a very kind of like, um, sort of isolated environment in terms of, of Dilly, we don't have, like, a long-term stable population of people
0: who oh, are detained yeah. there. So
1: there's, I think there's yeah. not the same, like, ministry needs that there might be at a place where people are detained for a long time. We do have a number of, of Catholic nuns that I know come visit um, Dilley from time to time and, some t- and sometimes launch her with us. Um, hmm. And that that's really great. Um, I went on a tour of... Uh, one of the, the new influx centers to detain children in Cariza Springs and the Bishop of Laredo was on the tour. So oh. I know that they go around to the different detention centers. Um, beyond that, I, do, I don't really know much about what the church's ministry looks like in, in like detention centers or, um, mm-hmm. I, or kind of advocacy on the border. Um, I know, I know that it's happening, um, mm-hmm. but I'm not, I'm not, incre- I'm not terribly familiar with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I noticed you um, right the church's perspective on this stuff is sort of interesting
1: in some ways they're like much more uh, much more interested in the rights of migrants than a lot of other oh yes, religious groups' or, or just like you know, oh yes, organizations surely. <laughs> but at the same time the, uh, the theology of the church is still very much they're still very invested in the idea that like you know at some level of generality like the nation state is real and has and is empowered to make laws and to decide who can come and who can't and that that is not something that you can actually really dispute you you can talk about whether it's humane to like pass certain kinds of laws but like Mm -hmm. hopefully that authority does rest with the state um so I, i remember i went to actually i'm remembering i went to one of the like um, the San Antonio missions and like found a pamphlet that was on huh. um, like Migrants Rights I It's like, oh, this is great stuff. And then there's like a weird line about like, but of course, like the nation state is like empowered to like make laws. So like, <laughs> it, it was
0: just like a weird, a weird mm-hmm. note. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: yeah.
0: You know, I loved your article on the um, Holy Infant of La Tocha, um, uh-huh. which, which is, you know, it's one of those images you see in a certain kind of grocery store. You know, ne- next to the candle with the Blessed Mother, there's this weird little baby in the Lord Fauntleroy suit, as you describe it. Um, and, then, and then you go off into medieval history. It was fantastic. It was a great article. But you know what it reminded me of, speaking of theology, um, Pope Francis is trying to bring the global South to the consciousness of the American church with great difficulty. Um, mm-hmm. But what he's about partly is called Teologia del Popolo. And, you know, that kind of popular Catholicism, he sees as, you know, and he's not trying to instrumentalize it really. He's just trying to say, this is a source of great, you know, spiritual energy and organization, and it should not be dismissed because it's popular, it's from the people. Uh, We need to learn from the people. So in a way that was great, the way you sort of unpacked that image. And it's a very, it's something American Catholics just, you know, we're having a really, my own parish is two parishes uh, at different times of the day on Sunday. And the the Spanish speaking mass, which I attend partly as a kind of language lab, (laughs) um, is, um, you know, somehow not very connected with the rest of the parish and everybody knows that and i think this is pretty typical so you know if the catholics can't figure this out who else you know can we turn to i mean with the way the catholic church is going globally and the rise of the global south we ought to be out in front of this
1: yeah no i mean i I certainly think that um uh one one of the The better things that that francis has tried to do is to sort of make it clear that like look like most of the church is actually in the global south so if you are trying if you are talking about the church this is what you're actually talking about um and and i think there is i mean i i have been i I confess i have not been to church in quite a long time (laughs) (laughs) It's it's okay but the the american church is like very sterile honestly like at least in my in my experience like the there's kind of very little church community. Um, yep. The, um, there's, there's no, and there's no underlying kind of, uh, I, like tradition sense of place. Like there are these just sort of like yep. very ugly churches that are sort of, that sort of spring up out of nowhere and like people go mm-hmm. to them. Like, and I, I mean, I also, I lived in areas that were very heavily, uh, military. So like the population was also very transient. So we never really oh, had wow. to a yeah, yeah. church. So that's part of it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I I do think that there there is probably like something pretty lacking in the American Church, sure. and um, I think that's all the more reason why this sort of like uh, like particular kind of conservative voice has come to dominate yep. the yep. American Church is because like there's there's sort of there's there's kind of no. <clears throat> Most, most, of, most of the people who oppose that are sort of, like, doing re, like doing really hard work in communities and are not, like, you know, in newspapers, like, writing op-eds because, like, you know, they're the nuns who are on the border, like, visiting Philly. Like, they don't have time for that. Like, That's right. <laughs> it's only the people who are, like, sitting around in their offices or, like, in their universities who <laughs> have time to, like, you know, write stuff about their supposed faith. Um, so,
0: This uh, is true. Yeah, this is problem. true. You know, uh, Pope Francis urged everybody to, I don't know if you remember this expression, he said, go out to the peripheries. Well, so I was thinking about this and, you know, I live in, uh, I live just south of Chicago. So where are the peripheries? I mean, he didn't really mean you have to get on an airplane, I think. I decided in my case, what he meant was I could go to the Hispanic mass at one o'clock, which for me was a kind of periphery in a way. And I did. And I found out that the atmosphere and that service was so different from the atmosphere in the Anglo masses that it was very, it was very encouraging. I mean, because after all, as you can imagine, almost any Hispanic community in this country, there's a kind of solidarity that, um, has many dimensions. Um, because they, you know, they're just not part of the system. And and my my crowd they these are not brand new people these are people who've been here for maybe a generation or two, and a friend told me yeah but they're maybe half undocumented. Mm-hmm. So they're very careful. They're very careful, yeah. and they and they stick together in the best sense. And so when I go to a mass there, um, trying as best I can to keep up with the homily, which is where I usually am out of my depth. Um, I get a very different vibe. It's a very different vibe. So, so I, I recommend it. Try it sometime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well,
1: there was a day I almost. Uh, I, I was in San Antonio, and they have, be- they have this beautiful cathedral in San Antonio. And I was like, I think I'm oh. going to go to mass today. And oh. then I looked, and it was like a like. Um, it was a, a. It was like a blue mass to honor like police
0: officers. Oh, but they wow. also
1: specifically said like ice.
0: Uh, border Patrol, and I was like, nope. Oh my <laughs> god! Great. <laughs> not that everyone doesn't, you know, deserve no, you know, yeah. right. prayer or whatever, but not, right. not, not for, not for me in that way. Right. <laughs> so. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, your your writing is wonderful, and and I love the fact that you you interested in a lot of different things. So we didn't get to talk about all of those at the moment, um, but I hope I hope you will uh, continue to be embedded. For a while longer, um, because I think you're just doing uh, yeoman service, uh, letting us know, you know, close up with what's called reportage. You know, what does it feel? What does it feel like uh, to be right there talking to these families and listening to these hair-raising stories and trying to make sense of so- something that reminds you from reminds you of the 1930s, right when Europe was collapsing. Yes. So. Yeah, no. It's uh,
1: I, I I I'm glad that, that you've enjoyed it um, because I, I I I do I do think it's important to try to convey some of some of these uh, experiences and, and put into context things that are happening um, and make it. I I I, I always think myself like I, I feel like my trajectory in life generally and towards this work was often influenced by particularly vivid mm. things that I read by people who were experiencing something in real time. And so I wanna to try to do that for other people where I can.
0: Yep, that's great, that's great. All right, well, thanks so much for doing this today. Um, we'll both have to say hi to our absent friend, Pete, when we run into him again. Um, yep. And I hope we will connect at another time. So it's been great, great talking to you, Brianna. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Bye.